Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and happy to be here. When comparing U.S. drug policy to other developed nations around the world, it would seem that we are still in the dark ages from the federal perspective, despite the fact that more than half of the states in our country are regulating cannabis for medical or adult use. When the United States declared war on marijuana, nearly every country in the world followed suit by signing on to standard anti-drug treaties according to U.S. policy. What is interesting is that our power to influence nations on drug policy now have diminished to the point of impotence. In the last couple of decades, countries like Israel have conducted scores of scientific research that is helping global policymakers realize the great deception that catalyzed the global war on marijuana. One by one, nations once aligned with our harsh federal policy are abandoning America's treaties and establishing new laws more aligned with common sense and, of course, the truth. Even though state regulation is rapidly progressing forward, it's becoming more and more apparent that our federal policy has put our cannabis industries at a serious disadvantage on the global scale. Other countries that have embraced policy reform at a federal level are positioned to outpace us in terms of research, education, innovation, and production. More importantly, they will have a competitive advantage as they are first to carve out market share, leaving us in the dust. Nowhere is this more evident than in Australia. Once the truth about cannabis prohibition was revealed, their laws changed accordingly and there was no going back. Having legalized hemp several years ago, the nation has now legalized cannabis for medical use at the federal level. That happened last year. And while their domestic market is still in its infancy, they are light years ahead in terms of new research and development without interference or threat of prosecution. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm very excited to introduce our guests who happen to be calling in from Australia. Let's get started. First, I would like to introduce you to Charlene Mavor. She's a medical cannabis research specialist and director of Cannabis Research Australia, who has been researching how medical cannabis may treat an ever-increasing array of disorders. 
Her university background in diagnostic pathology gives her the knowledge to understand disease processes in the human body. She has traveled all over the world to learn firsthand from leading researchers in the field of cannabinoid science. And she is passionate about sharing this knowledge that she's gained by educating others and speaking at events under the banner of her charity, Medical Cannabis Research Australia. So Charlene, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And Paul Mavor of Health House International, he's a pharmacist who's been researching the potential of medical cannabis as a treatment for several years. His company was granted the first medicinal cannabis import license in Australia. That's huge. And he's currently distributing medicinal cannabis products to eligible patients everywhere and brings a wealth of knowledge from his hands-on research in the U.S., Canada, and Israel. So, Paul, I'm delighted to have you on the show as well. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Certainly welcome. So, When you come to the U.S., our laws are actually a bit more restrictive, I think, even in states where cannabis is legal because of our federal uh, regulation. What do you notice most, you know, when you come over here and speak with people in the states, what do you notice most about our regulation here? Uh, Well, it's been described to me as a patchwork quilt of laws. It's different from state to state, but it's really exciting uh, for us, really, to get a glimpse into our future. We're only just starting out in the medical cannabis industry in Australia, and very early in the piece, we knew we needed to travel to the US to learn from people who have been doing this for a number of years. So, particularly, one of our first events we travelled to was um, Jay Canner's Cannabis Science Conference in Portland, Oregon, and it was a fantastic introduction into the science behind this, which I think really opens up the entire industry, uh, not only in, in America and the, and the world, and it gives people confidence that there's a lot more medically behind this than people just you know, smoking cannabis recreationally. There's a lot of benefits to some patients, and, and some of these have no other treatment options. I wonder how the atmosphere, in terms of governmental support of research in Australia, Is it a lot more open there, do you think? Yes, absolutely. Our government is openly supporting research here. And in fact, some of the state um, government departments have actually uh, ploughed some money into research. So it's very supported. Um, Our government has also announced that they're very interested in having uh, production companies here Uh, able to export once our local demand has been met. So we're getting amazing support from our government at the moment. And the stigma, how long has has it taken, do you think, for Australia since you began this whole process there? Because I think you actually are a lot farther ahead than we are, aren't you? It's happened very fast and our parliament federally debated it uh, and in less than a day they legalised medical cannabis federally. Uh, They did so at a very high level, it's still only available on doctor's prescription to a few patient groups. But the fact we're legal federally is a really good thing, particularly for research. Uh, we'll get there eventually with patient numbers. We're only really just starting out. It's only available through uh, prescriptions, as I said, and only through pharmacies. So we haven't adopted a dispensary model. Uh, we've adopted a medical model, but as such, the 
the government at Charlene said are ploughing millions of dollars into research. Um, in, in saying that, we have only had a product available in Australia for a year and we're at uh, a point where we've just gone over around the 500th patient. So in one year, 500 patients, it's not too bad. It's a really great start. Yeah, and when I say that Australia seems so much farther ahead, it's mainly from the perspective of the regulatory environment nationally, because, you know, here, of course, we have our state regulation, and there's been a lot of enthusiasm about the science that has opened up in the United States because of that. But it seems as though Australia, the the regulatory environment in just the short amount of time, seems it is much farther ahead since it became legal And is that opening the doors for pharmaceutical companies to actually come in and start creating product or is it still a cottage industry? No, definitely. There's a lot of investment. Another benefit about being federally illegal, we've got uh, the ability to list cannabis companies on the stock exchange and there's a number uh, of companies who've been able to fundraise that way and get money, uh, large amounts of money to develop products. Um, at a, albeit at a very high level, uh, they're, they're pharmaceutical grade products rather than just bud or flower. Uh, and they've, they've set the bar pretty high, which is probably a good thing for us in the end that there's going to be some, eventually some high level products hopefully come out of Australia because of this. I can only imagine that that is the case. And from a research perspective, have universities really begun to embrace this as a science? Uh, absolutely, they have. Um, now, we don't, in terms of education, it's only just starting where we're starting to get some of our um, researchers go into medical schools and start uh, teaching about the endocannabinoid system. So we do have a lot, a, a long way to go before that's like in universally embraced in a medical um, education program. So we will get there. It started on the east coast of Australia and I'm sure it will get rolled out at all the medical schools around Australia. That would be amazing if we could begin to start doing that here as well. You know, we still have a bit of trepidation on the part of academic institutions, even though, you know, state regulation is in full swing, more than half of the United States. But it's been a challenge. And when you travel around, Charlene, you, you've spent time in Israel and in Europe and other countries. What are some of the experiences that really stand out for you in terms of seeing the progress and and the science that has been uncovered? Um, well, we've, we've spent a bit of time with an amazing Israeli scientist, Dedi Miri, and he's doing some groundbreaking cancer work with cannabinoid uh, therapy. So that for us, we're finding that incredibly exciting. We also know Dr. Sue Sisley quite well, who's doing post-traumatic stress disorder research. Um, she's got a clinical trial underway at the moment. So these kind of things are very exciting because this just opens up massive pathways to um, therapeutics, uh, new qualifying conditions for patients to be considered when doctors are writing prescriptions for medical cannabis. So these sorts of things are, yeah, amazing for us. All, all research is amazing, really. Um, uh, it's exactly what we need to see, and we need this evidence for our doctors as well. It's very I, think, I think it's really important to get the runs on the board uh, and get the clinical trials done and prove definitively that uh, medical cannabis works 
for a few medical conditions rather than this piecemeal anecdotal evidence that uh, for some conditions. There's some really good evidence for things like chronic pain, but for other new conditions like um, dementia um, and irritable bowel syndrome, a whole range of um, neurological diseases, that there's huge potential that medical cannabis can benefit these patients. And currently there's no pharmaceutical options. You're right. And in fact, the pharmaceutical options, uh, not only do they not help, but often they, they intensify the suffering that leads to other problems as well, um, which we've noticed with the opioid addiction epidemic here in the United States. And, um, but yeah, you're right. It is a patchwork of anecdotal evidence mixed with science. You know, what's interesting though, too, I don't know how often you utilize the studies that have isolated like, you know, certain genes or certain pathogens or whatever to see what happens when they're introduced to cannabinoids of whatever kind. I mean, there are 20,000 of them on pubmeds.gov, which I find astonishing considering that that's a, a federally funded website and the U.S. government still considers cannabis to have no medical use. Yeah, yeah. But so when you, when you put all of those pieces together, I mean, certainly it is very promising the future of cannabis, the potential for it to transform the field of medicine. What are your thoughts about that? I totally agree. Uh, there's just so much potential here and we're just only scratching the surface now. Um, there's a long way to go. It may take 20 years to un unravel and unlock all of these um, mysteries as to exactly how cannabinoids interact with human cells, but it, it's incredibly exciting. It comes down to quality rather than quantity. You mentioned there's a large number of studies being done there's a large number that haven't been done properly. There's a lot of small-scale studies, a lot of bias studies. Um, it, it takes time, effort and money to do them properly. And unfortunately, scientists haven't been able to do this for the last 80 years because cannabis has essentially been banned and they've been pre prevented from doing that. But over the next few years, we're really hopeful that we'll get some evidence uh, there from some well-run, double-blinded, uh, placebo-based gold standard clinical exactly. trials. And we, and we need um, high patient numbers as well in these trials. It needs to be con really convincing evidence. So this is what we, we really need to be looking towards and companies that can afford to run these trials, they should be putting money into it. Well, you mentioned Sue Sisley and therein was one of the biggest problems that she has faced right now um, with her clinical study because she's obviously studying the, the impact of cannabis on veterans who have symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And I think finding enough people who are willing to you know, risk being outed, if you will, for using cannabis to actually participate in the study openly, you know, that's, that's a big challenge. And I can imagine if you only have, what did you say, 500,000 patients right now? 500. <laughs> only 500. That's, that's more than some US dispensaries. <laughs> some dispensaries would probably do more than one afternoon, but it, we're, it's early days. I've only just opened the um, floodgates and we expect that number to increase exponentially. We're actually pretty chuffed 
when we uh, presented these figures at last year's Cannabis Science Conference in Portland, Oregon, the Canadians, they only did 150 in their first year. So we beat them. So we're pretty happy about that. <laughs> wow. Well, 500. That, you know, I guess that's a lot. When you said 500, I automatically added 1,000 to it because, um, <laughs> you know, it just seems like Australia is a fairly large country in terms of population. And that's astonishing that it hasn't become more wildly popular to become a medical patient with cannabis. Oh, so. it's, it's very popular to... Um, there's many people wanting to be a patient right now, but uh, they need the they need their doctors to be on board. So it, that's that's the issue. So Paul and I have actually been doing a lot of education with doctors, but we've just got such a long way to go. There's many doctors that don't even know what an endocannabinoid system is. So isn't that astonishing? Considering it's like the seventh largest system in your entire body that governs like all sorts of things from metabolism to central nervous system. It's only just started to be taught uh, last year to first year medical students. So if you give it a little bit of time, I think it'll be amazing. But we're starting, um, we started last year from zero patients and the government set the bar with um, pretty high with six medical conditions where there's good clinical evidence. Um, and there's a lot of paperwork to be filled in, but over time, some of that paperwork is being streamlined and access will, is definitely getting easier. We've noticed that in the short term already in the last few months. Have, has there been a, a large incidence of illicit marijuana use in Australia in general? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's estimated there's 100,000 patients using underground um, sources of cannabis to treat their, their medical condition. But what about those who just like to imbibe for the sake of um, relaxing or, or, you know, having some fun? A lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's actually incredibly popular here, just as, just as much as it is in the US. So I wonder what the statistics are in terms of the approval rating of implementing medical care or legalizing in general. Is it something that you think the public in Australia would, would support overwhelmingly? Definitely, definitely. Um, there, there was recently a um, one of our political parties did float that idea. Um, I think there's a lot of public support, uh, but we feel at the moment, although we are supportive of legalisation, we feel that it might um, muddy the waters with the medical issue at the moment because we feel it's really important for us to get medical use widely accepted and accepted among the medical profession first. And we don't feel that as a nation, Australia is quite ready for legalization of adult use, so but it will come. In, in Australia, like in the US, there's broad political and public support for medical cannabis. I think that it's up to 91 to 93% uh, or in that nature, but there's only about half the people support um, cannabis for adult, adult use. And if you look at what's happened in some of the US legal states and Canada, there's been a natural progression from adopting a medical system to uh, five, 10 to 15 years down the track, uh, opening it up for adult use. So we expect that to play out in Australia. 
Yeah, and I think that a lot of medical professionals here would completely agree with, in fact, um, on this show, I've interviewed a number of, of doctors who don't see anything wrong with uh, people using cannabis for whatever reason, but the fear is that it will undermine the progress in establishing it as a medicine. Yeah. And, you know, and, and take away some of the, the guidelines that are currently being established for patients in general, because, I mean, if, if someone's a patient and they're sick and their friend had the same thing and they cured themselves, you know, of cancer or of whatever other condition and they go and they get cannabis just because their friend did, they're not checking in with the doctor so that the doctor can monitor the process. Yes. So, you know, yeah, so I, I see your point entirely, and it's probably very smart on behalf of the Australian government to handle it that way, I would think. We, we agree. We think so. Um, see, the problem is once adult use is, is around, I think it's hard. It's going to be difficult to push through the need for clinical trials because, well, if you can just go and get it, at wherever your local drugstore, then why do you need clinical trials to prove it's scientific, um, scientific evidence and its efficacy? So we just believe that, yeah, it's just not quite the right time for legalisation, although, you know, we do believe in the war on drugs has failed and it, it will stop criminal elements. But it's, it's a very difficult Difficult question, isn't it? But we really need um, health professionals and government and the general public to really be um, on board with the medical use and, and, and just so that it can be widespread and accepted. Yeah, well, I think that that's, um, that's definitely smart. And with illicit use, is it decriminalised to possess in Australia or is it still a pretty hefty offence? Um, it's an offence. I think there's one state who's decriminalised it. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still a way off. I, I think in the long run, it's going to be better from a harm minimisation point of view to adopt that system. But um, I think over time, you'll see a, a gradual softening of the laws as some of the authorities realise the sky's not falling in with uh, adopting a medical cannabis system. Um, and it will change their thinking over time. Yeah, I, I can imagine they would. I can imagine they would. So you've been speaking a lot. I noticed that you've had some engagements recently in the United States. And um, tell me what, what is coming up for you. Well, one other thing we've just done, which you haven't mentioned, we've just been to South America. Uh, we presented at the first ever cannabis science conference in Bogota, Colombia, uh, which was actually based on the U.S. Cannabis Science Conference in Portland. And that was amazing. That was a room full of uh, very excited uh, Colombians that have just opened up their doors federally as well to their medical system. Um, that, um, yeah, Charlene described them as a room full of supermodels, very well dressed. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, they're very excited. I think so far they've issued uh, almost 70 cultivation licenses and a whole bunch of manufacturing licenses. Uh, we also went to a, a clinic in Santiago, Chile. We've seen 20,000 patients over the last five years and are doing some really good research, um, particularly in the areas of epilepsy and autism. And autism. 
and they've been able to get up to 90% um, of patients have a, you know, a marked seizure reduction from using their specific formula. And uh, they're about to release a paper shortly on that. So that, that's going to be really exciting. So in terms of our future, um, just this weekend, uh, we have an expo in Sydney called Hemp Health and Innovation. We're, um, I'm running two medical panels there where we, we have some doctors who, who are uh, interested in cannabinoid science discussing um, where they see things going. We have patient input, we have patient questions. Um, Paul's doing a uh, presentation about the pharmacodynamics of cannabis and um, the cannabis, uh, cannabis um, as Just a some of the safety data as a medicine and where we sit evidence-wise. We have a, a, a two other presentations um, a few days later to the, a patient group called Dying with Dignity um, about um, uh, palliative care yeah. and cannabis medicine. Yeah, so we've got a few presentations um, ahead of us. Tell me about the autism. That's pretty interesting. We just did an episode two weeks ago on autism, speaking with a mother of a child who really found some incredible healing through cannabis therapy. And uh, sadly, her, her son was terminally ill as in addition to having autism and, and recently passed away. And we were just devastated to hear that because the success that he had had with healing in terms of the autism was just remarkable. But tell me about some of the things you learned about autism. Well, one thing is patients uh, are less violent. Uh, they're behaving better. They're vocalizing better. Um, but realistically, all the evidence and that the study hasn't been done. We know it works, but someone needs to do the study properly. And uh, I know in the clinic in Santiago, they're doing some great work. Uh, they're about to publish. Uh, Professor Deddy Mary, who Charlie mentioned earlier, is doing some great work in Israel. And it's really important to get behind the science of this to turn it from uh, essentially a fringe medicine into a mainstream medicine. Now, cannabis, as we know, is big and everyone's really excited by it, but I'm of the belief it can be 10 times bigger if we do the research properly. Mm -hmm. And I know Professor Mary, he's uh, presented, I've seen his presentation a couple of times and he tells his great story that um, he was doing some work on autistic patients and all of a sudden he got this phone call saying, look, it's not working, their patients are, um, uh, a violent, aggressive, you've given us a different product. And um, he went back to the suppliers and they said, no, it's the same product. He actually tested both products and found there was minute differences. And he said this was one of the best things that ever happened because he could compare the two cannabis pro profiles and work out specifically what cannabinoids were important. So that's that. what had happened is there was a certain cannabinoid that hadn't been expressed in the second batch of um, cannabis perhaps a few hours less of sunlight or picked slightly earlier, but there was a certain cannabinoid missing and it, w it made a huge difference as to the efficacy in treating the, the autism in these patients. So it's just amazing what we're learning. I can imagine that that, that would be the case. And when you, when you consider that a lot of the government approved studies that are happening here, 
they're they're restricted to use only government produced cannabis, which is often laden with uh, mold and other mm -hmm. pathogens that just mm -hmm. completely contaminate the science. And there's a lot of hoo-ha right now about isolates. Somehow people think that isolates are going to be, you know, more powerful or better. Like if you get an isolate of a CBD and that sort of thing, but they're not really understanding how all of these other cannabinoids work together to enhance the activity of the endocannabinoid system and, and actually target specific diseases. Tell me what you've learned about that, Charlene. Okay, so this comes um, to the theory of the entourage effect. So the theory is, and it has been proven um, in the lab, uh, cannabinoids work much better when they have other cannabinoids present. Um, the, the sum of the parts is way more effective than the individual molecules. So isolates, not, I'm not actually a big fan. I think maybe in some very small um, circumstances they may work, but I really believe in the entourage effect where we have CBD, THC present, CBC, CBN, terpenes, all these things seem to be working together to produce a much better therapeutic effect and with smaller doses. So this is really what we should be looking at. This is much more important than trying to have isolates. Isolates are something that big pharma find easier to work with. Um, the single molecular um, structure, that's something that big pharma like. They like it, it's simple, There's, it's not complicated, but it's just not gonna work with cannabinoid medicine. It's just, that's just not how it works. I think where the science is at the moment, we ha haven't narrowed down what is important in cannabis. Uh, we know there's something in there that works, but for the time being, it's better to use full plant. M maybe down the track, they might isolate what's important for each particular condition, but not at the moment. I think they'll still find that they need to um, have several cannabinoids in there. That's, um, that's just what we're seeing now. And most researchers are agreeing on this. Yeah, and in layman's terms, or as much as possible in layman's terms, can you give us a little snapshot of how the presence of additional cannabinoids will help a single cannabinoid work better? Is there a little snapshot that you could provide? It's fairly complicated, but it's to do with um, how the um, molecules are acting on um, the CB1 and CB2 receptors in our body. Um, the different cannabinoids seem to potentiate and help the cannabinoids bind. Um, we, we do have a basic understanding of it, but it, it is still fairly complex, you know, uh, mechanism that's quite cellular. So... Well, actually, that was quite helpful. Um, and considering that the science is still um, new, I mean, an ancient medicine is now finally getting some scientific recognition. Yeah. Um, that was pretty good. I mean, what would you liken it to in terms of, you know, one, one thing that comes to mind is like dopamine receptors. You know, people understand what that is. How similar is a receptor from the endocannabinoid system to, say, a dopamine receptor? Well... Receptors are quite complex anyway. I, I, um, 
always amazed by some of the scientists uh, who have been studying this for 30 years who pull up these great big diagrams of receptors and, and molecules. They're not just as simple as, as they sound, but um, it certainly is a, a lot of stuff going on and there's, there's years worth of research in there. I can imagine there couldn't be any simple way to explain it fully without going into the weeds of science. No pun intended there. <laughs> <laughs> Not yeah, yeah. So in terms of the work that both of you are doing, what would you think would be the, the greatest takeaway that you'd like our audiences here in the States to know and understand? Um. I think um, doctors need to um, educate themselves about the endocannabinoid system and how this medicine can work and understand that it can replace and be a better option for patients. It's a safer option. It's very low on the addiction scale. No one has died. Um, I think People, uh, patients should definitely put pressure on their politicians to be allowing this in the non-medical states. It's, it's very important. It, it's something that they should be looking at. I think being federally legal opens up uh, a lot of pathways um, to for cannabis, particularly with, as far as research, also as far as your concern for trade. Uh, the US cannot trade, you know, to the state next to it, let alone internationally. Uh, I know Canada's um, doing some amazing things at the moment internationally. Uh, you guys are going to fight with your hands tied behind your back. I, I think um, having a federally legal system um, is really, really important to, to move this industry to where it should be. That's right. And, and we'll start to see some better standards um, in terms of the medicine. Um, it'll be standardised across the board. Um, this is all important. We need a safe, safe medication for people. And the only way we can do that is to make sure it's tested and everyone is, is on the same page with that. So in the new law, I mean, do they, have they set aside some standards that, that say cultivators need to follow? Oh, definitely, definitely. So one of the f first times we were at a um, conference, there was members of the Australian government there at um, the Cannabis Science Conference and, and boot camp in Portland. And we were watching very closely the American system um, and the Canadian system. And we, we pretty much adopted best practice as far as uh, testing of cannabis for pesticides, heavy metals, um, purity and potency. And they've adopted some quite sort of strict laws in that respect, but they're, they're nothing out of the ordinary that you wouldn't expect uh, as a consumer. And it's no different from any other drug. And even if you made bottled Hopefully. water, you'd want some sort of guarantee as a consumer that it was safe. Exactly. Yeah. And who, who is responsible really for, for establishing those standards? There's an Australian government body called the TGA, which is equivalent to your um, FDA. And, Therapeutic Goods Administration. Yeah, um, and they're, they're the same sort of, they operate in the same role and they're responsible for safeguarding the public for medicines. And uh, it's really good because they've put it in their system alongside all the other medicines that we, we take on a daily basis. There was a, a convention of organizations coming together on a global scale to try to establish some standards. And I actually interviewed a woman who has an organization called Focus, um, which is 
participating in this sort of global standardization thing. How closely related do you think the Australian standards would be to some of the global standards that are now, uh, well, they're trying to establish? I think they would be as high, if not higher. At the moment, we're seeing the Australian standard for medical cannabis products to be actually higher than Health Canada standards, slightly higher. So yeah, it'll be very high. <laughs> I haven't seen the global standards, so I would like to comment, but um, I know the Australian standards so are probably where we should be uh, based on international, what, what I've seen. Well, the, the, see, the Australian government are very interested in exports, so they need to know and want to know that our product is of the highest standard so that it can be exported to Asian countries and elsewhere around the world. How, you have a hemp program there as well, correct, for industrial hemp? Yes, we do, yes. It's, it's just recently been expanded. It, it, um, it wasn't in a terribly big hemp industry, but it's um, really, in the last two years, has grown exponentially. They're, um, they've recently allowed hemp foods. Uh, there's some, a couple of really nice hemp beers on the market at the moment. And um, yeah, the hemp industry is going to be doing amazing things in Australia. And, and the conference we're attending um, this weekend uh, is it's quite quite big, and it's a hemp focused conference. Wow! And so yeah, that's what you mentioned earlier. So, and has CBD hemp derived CBD really taken off there then? Not no, not yet. Um, it's not really something the government is promoting too much at the moment. Uh, unfortunately, the, the hemp drive CBD has been caught up in the medical law, so it's still a prescription item and needs um, a doctor to write a prescription, but that may change over time, as uh, particularly with the World Health Organization current ruling. That really is going to make a difference, I think, all over the world. I mean, we've seen a lot of access open up in countries that, you know, would probably have... Um, uh, I, for lack of a better word, you know, really uh, impose some severe punishment for people with hemp, which is completely crazy when you consider that, you know, it's not a, it's not a psychotropic drug that's used for recreational use. But one of the things that we're lacking here in the United States is an infrastructure to accommodate the industrial hemp. And so many countries are so much farther ahead in terms of that. And I just wonder, from your perspective, you've seen a lot of push for hemp for environmental reasons to combat climate change. Um, it, do you mean in Australia? Yes. I think, I think the government um, understands the potential of hemp and, and that's why they, they are supporting it at the moment. But I wouldn't say um, this, this, they're supporting the industry but there's so much more that they can be doing and I don't think they've got a full understanding of like the impact that hemp could have in terms of how we can use it and, and economically how, how incredibly huge it could be for the country. So I think we've got a little ways to go there, but things, things are changing and, and definitely hemp licenses are being supported and they are being issued. But of course, because we were implementing the medical cannabis system, our hemp licenses were actually suspended for at least 12 to 18 months. I think the government didn't really understand enough about hemp and, and the oils that can be produced and they just thought, let's just put a hold on things. So we did have some hemp farmers 
um, still producing crops. But since medical um, has largely adopted here over the last year, now hemp licenses are starting to be issued again and people are uh, really starting to ramp up their um, large scale production of hemp in Australia. So the government is probably doesn't have quite a handle yet on what how this economically could be very big for Australia and yeah the uses of hemp but I think we're getting there and we're starting to have those discussions now in Australia. And then in terms of your own research how much have you really studied or compared hemp to whole plant cannabis in the medical uh, marijuana species? I have done a little bit of research on this. Um, Unfortunately, with hemp, we need to actually use a lot more flour to uh, make the same amount of CBD oil. It does, for some reason, um, the yield is actually quite low compared to using a cannabis flour. So, yes, there are um, applications there, but I think um, in the short term, perhaps hemp for hemp seeds and stalks for um, fibre. Maybe that's probably more important at the moment. And the fact that we can grow cannabis and make CBD here quite easily anyway, I don't really see that using hemp for CBD would, is going to be as important here in Australia. I, I'm not a big fan of hemp for medical use because particularly with cannabis um, and chronically ill patients, you need to grow the same every single time and replicate it and and being that hemp's grown outdoors you will get variances in nutrients um, sunlight rainfall um yeah i i prefer the, the plant grown indoors the same every single time and then standardized uh, from a medical point of view yeah I, I just yeah i agree yeah well you know what hemp has been an amazing alternative for people who've been living in prohibition states who have absolutely zero access or zero legal access anyway to cannabis in general and the fact that we've had um, uh, an appellate court ruling which is federal stating that hemp derived nutrients such as CBD and hemp food and hemp industrial products are perfectly legal anywhere in the United States to import, buy and sell. So it really is a great bridge, I would think, you know, and I wonder if those kinds of products have been available before the medical program in Australia. Do you know? Yes, they they have been available, definitely. There, there was quite a lot of importing of hemp-derived CBD, but at the moment um, that's completely stopped now because CBD um, here is scheduled, uh, I'm not, not sure if exactly the same what the scheduling is in the US, but it is, it is lower, it's down scheduled compared to THC containing cannabis oils, but it's still, you still require a prescription from your doctor and you still need authorization. Interesting you should you should mention that um, because hemp is also um, conflated with with marijuana in the scheduling. So hemp is actually still considered to be a schedule one substance, <laughs> even though it's got lots of medical use and no potential for abuse and has never killed anyone. Mm-hmm. But the state laws have really been the ones to bring hemp into the public. So 
And furthermore, the government actually sent out in their annual registry a directive giving CBD the molecule by itself its own numerical code within the class of Schedule One drugs. And it really sent the CBD market here into a complete flurry, as you can imagine. So many companies producing CBD supplements and food that contains CBD. So, you know, there was a lot of confusion with that. And I don't know, despite the laws, it's almost as if um, the laws are completely ignored by the states that are regulating. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just interesting. It's definitely an interesting problem <laughs> to have. So that's just absolutely ridiculous. But I, I was going to also add um, that the World Health Organization has a very big meeting to discuss CBD and other cannabinoids in about a month's time. Mm, that's going to be important. Now, the you know, the repercussions of that meeting obviously will have worldwide, you know, will have an effect worldwide, and especially for CBD, because this is a start. And I assume that the US will have to adopt what the World Health Organization decides. It's going to be really good ammunition for our industry and I can't imagine they're going to just um, not, uh, they're certainly not going to upschedule CBD at that point. Yeah, that's going to be a very interesting outcome that I will watch with bated breath because a lot of the prohibition around the world was a result of the US prohibition and there's a lot of unraveling of international drug treaties, mm-hmm. you know, with respect to anything related to cannabis, marijuana, hemp, any of that. So I, I really look forward to hearing. Will you be going to that? No, but we, um, there's an Australian representative who's very well qualified to lobby on our behalf. Uh, he will be there. Uh, we work very closely with him uh, in the Medical Cannabis Council of Australia. We've got an um, organisation which lobbies for uh, access and things for our industry. Just yeah, an, an immediate to the government departments. Yeah, well, I'll be looking forward to the outcomes from that. So tell me really quickly, Charlene, how did you begin studying cannabis? Well, it was as a du- direct result of um, Paul becoming interested, actually. Um, he, he suggested, oh, look at this, um, very interesting about people actually stating that cannabis is safe and and it's got medical value so i think we just both being in this industry and it's kind of in our skill set just started to do a little bit of research on the internet and start reading some articles and the more and more i read the more i was convinced this has actually got something in it and we thought wow well surely this is going to come to australia maybe we should have a look and see what conferences are on where we can learn a little bit more from people that are actually studying it in the lab and maybe doing some early patient studies. So that's kind of where we started. And we started off as complete skeptics and have come full circle and now very passionate supporters of medical cannabis. And what do you think are some of the most groundbreaking discoveries that you yourself have made in your research? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, There's just so many. Um, Just looking at the different conditions it can treat and how that I just think that's amazing. The neurological, once you treat one neurological condition, you're fairly much treating all of them. Um, Any kind of spasmodic conditions are all, they're all treated. 
Um, at the moment, doctors are looking and governments are looking at individual conditions, but they're all so closely related. So I think that's the exciting part. That's There's just so many conditions that can be treated and really quite effectively when other medications aren't working anymore. So for me, um, the big strength of cannabis at the moment is for chronic pain. Um, people are living longer, they need new treatment options. Uh, our bodies weren't, weren't designed to, to live as long, long as we are. There's people with back injuries, et cetera. And there's lots of other drugs on the market, but in my opinion, uh, cannabis is really, really effective for chronic pain because it treats a number of conditions and not only helps the pain, um, it helps patients sleep better. It's got a mild anti-anxiety. Uh, it helps nausea, which is often associated with pain. That's that's where we're at now. And we're finding in Australia, probably about 70% of the patients are, are taking it for this chronic pain. Um, but where the future lies, I believe, is in neurological diseases like dementia, which is currently, we, we've got a, a whole lot of pharmaceutical drugs, but none that can treat uh, or largely help the symptoms of patients with dementia. And our nursing homes in Australia, and I imagine in the US, are full of patients with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. It's estimated up to 52% of patients in institutions are, are there as a direct result of these diseases. And there's been some really good low-level research that show that cannabis may be a benefit for these patients, and they really do need to do the definitive research study that shows that once and for all that that's <laughs> so we really do need the definitive study that showed medical cannabis is a benefit for the patients with uh, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Yeah, and unfortunately in, in those institutions, the medicines that they're treating uh, Alzheimer's patients with actually make the dementia slightly worse or impact their behavioral responses to the point where they're complete zombies half of the time. Exactly. All we've got currently is to tranquilize these patients to make life easy for their carers. Yeah, I, I think that that is criminal personally, and I've had experience with that, which I've talked about on this show quite a bit. But I'm, I'm really hopeful that in geriatric medicine, anyway, that, that cannabis is found to really help prevent that kind of over-medication of patients who really don't need those powerful, debilitating drugs. It's all very interesting, isn't it? Oh, certainly. And I, I, I think the future uh, with, with cannabis lies amongst the baby boomers. I mean, we see quite a few mums with sick kids that, that make all the, the news headlines, but the real large amount of people that are going to be using this are going to be the elderly. They need new treatment options, and it's particularly good for a lot of them. So the real future with medical cannabis, I believe, I believe lies with baby boomers or the elderly that they suffer from a lot of chronic illnesses that I believe medical cannabis can help with such as chronic pain or um, dementia related illness, um, neurological illnesses, which we're not at yet, but um, there's been lots of anecdotal cases that, that shows that it works and lots of small scale studies. We really do need to do the big definitive gold standard clinical trial yeah, I think a lot of people have found that those conditions are really helped with cannabis, even with just CBD from hemp too. I mean, I've heard I've heard a lot of people really find success with a reduction of of the rate at which dementia occurs. And so, do you have any any last thoughts, Paul? Let's start with you. Um, 
Well, I think where, where we are at the moment, we're on the cusp of this industry that we know is going to be, be amazing and uh, it's really exciting to be a part of this and it changes from a day-to-day basis what, what's happening. Um, but really, I feel some of the, the research where we're at at the moment um, is going to be quite amazing to be able to treat some of these conditions in, in a few years and I think we need to do it, do it properly. Um, we, we can't say all the research has been done, let's just roll it out. We need to um, dot the I's and cross the T's and, and make it happen by doing it uh, the, re- the proper research. And Charlene, what do you think? I would like to just do a little plug for our charity. <laughs> so our Medical Cannabis Research Australia, we're really interested in trying to see if we can facilitate some research here in Australia. And one of the... One of the um, conditions we are very, really interested in at least starting to do a pilot study on is Alzheimer and Alzheimer's dementia. So we would just like to invite researchers, anyone interested to maybe think about donating and think about getting some of these studies off the ground because this kind of research is going to impact the world. It's going to change doctors' minds and change government's minds. And this is just so important at the moment. And I would think that with the largest segment of our population getting into those aging years, this couldn't be a more important moment in history to really start looking into Alzheimer's. And are you going to be looking into Parkinson's as well? Or I think we're going to start with Alzheimer's dementia at first. Uh, of course, Parkinson's is also a condition that should be addressed and we know it will be addressed well with cannabis medicine. But yeah, definitely the dementia issue is something we're really passionate about. Parkinson's very closely related. I think if someone gets it right, there is potentially a billion dollar molecule. So it's worth spending um, some money on research to achieve that. And currently there's, there's no pharmaceutical treatments for these patients. And it's a billion dollar cost to society, but not only that, it's also the emotional toll to their family and friends. No doubt. And have you already done some research, Charlene, on Alzheimer's? Definitely. There's been an, a number of small pilot studies done in Israel, and they've actually shown some really promising early results. So that we'd like to expand upon that and do a, a larger patient cohort. So this is something that we're really trying hard to um, implement sometime soon here in Australia. We're just about to kick off a small-scale study, which will hope hopefully will lead to a, a lot bigger study um, mm-hmm. at a higher level. But because we're federally legal, uh, we can do that. We don't have to, this raft of uh, layers of approvals that we need. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that in this country as well. Because the, the federal regulation is really thwarting a lot of the progress. Um, we do have a researcher very interested. Uh, he's indicated to us that we need to look at getting funding so that's what we're going to be addressing very soon. But any, any support for any of you listeners, we're always welcome new support. So for people listening, tell me how they can find you. We have a Facebook page, Medical Cannabis Research Australia, also on Instagram and Twitter. And we do have our own website, obviously, as well. It's mcra.org.au. mcra.org.au, correct? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. Well, I wish you tons of luck with that. It's clearly necessary. 
And I think that the more people hear about it, the more support that you'll get. So we'll do our part in just getting the word out. So please feel free to send me some of your updates as you get closer to your study or a release or anything happening on your end of the world. Please feel free to send it to us. We're happy to help promote. No, we'll keep in touch. If we've got any big news, we'll let you know. Love to send you the picture of Charlotte and I took when we imported the first shipment of Canadian medical cannabis to Australia. It's probably one of the first legal shipments of cannabis anywhere in the world. And we actually sent a picture to the Australian version of Jeff Sessions. <laughs> Is there an Australian version? I thought he was one of kind. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, the person who fills that role, he's very, very different. He, I sent him the picture and said the eagle has landed and he sent a text back. That's awesome, guys. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> that is classic. I love it. Yeah, it's the money shot. <laughs> it's the money shot. That, I love it. Okay. Well, if you don't mind sharing that and allowing us to publish it, then I'll use it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate all of your input. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, it is getting to be about that time to bring yet another show to a close. And once again, I would like to personally thank my guests, Charlene Maver and Paul Maver, for sharing their insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work they are doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and I will post their bios along with information about their studies and their charity and links to their website. And while you're there, please be sure to check out our new platform, Veterans Voices, where you'll see videos of veterans sharing their experiences to inspire support of the advocacies that are working for change. We have a lot of others to thank. First, I would like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Alpine Miracle, Health Terra, and Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Eric Goodall for our theme song, Evergreen, our engineers at DigiLabs, our producers and staff here at the Cannabis Reporter for making a shine. And I'd also like to thank our program directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites for distributing our show. And last but not least, thank you to all of you for listening around the nation. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week same time, same place for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. 
you're busy. Running around from work to kids to evening events, healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra. For only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids, by the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24-7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.